the, the locking latch on the doors just to get the doors to stay shut. And, and then my oatmeal was too hot, and I let, put it out in the car and just let it cool down. And, it, of course, it practically froze in 2.3 seconds. And, and so uh, this California boy is getting used to uh, winters in the, in the Midwest. We don't, we don't have anything like this in California at all. Yeah, yeah, right. I might never get used to it. Um, Colossians chapter 3, um, we're going to read verse 5 through 11, uh, and it reads, um, Colossians 3, starting in verse 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Some translations say, or the wrath of God comes. In these two, you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger and wrath, malice and slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this rich word. Lord, we have meditated through the book of Colossians on your work of justifying us by the grace of God that that is not something we participate in because we can contribute nothing to our just and right standing for our salvation. It is all the work of Christ. And even the faith that we have is by grace because you've given it to us as a gift. Your word tells us that. Now we transition from this topic of justification to the topic of sanctification and fighting against remaining sin in us. Lord, we pray that you would uh, give us hearts that are uneasy with the fact that there yet remains indwelling sin in our members and in our bodies, that we might hate our sins, fight against our sins, open our heart, Lord God, in our minds, that we might know and perceive and understand what you would have us to, to uh, glean and receive from this passage of Scripture, which is your word. Lord, we thank you now. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Um, just a kind of a warning. I, I was kind of torn whether I should give this warning this morning. Um, there are some, some of you in here, some of us are young, some of us are kids, teenagers, children. I don't think I'm going to be breaching any heavy-duty topics, but Paul is talking about sexual immorality. And so just, I might be repeating the word sex and sexual immorality about a half a dozen times. And so I just wanted to give you parents fair warning. Um, you know, every household is different. So in now my opinion, I think our children from an early age are bombarded with the world's alter alternative from such an early age through the television and internet and music that it's good for them to hear, uh, you know, uh, us dealing with it from uh, the perspective of the Word of God. 
But I did want to give you that warning just so you're not caught off guard by that. Um, <clears throat> so, um, you know, a few things resu- resulted from uh, Adam and Eve's rebellion in the garden that have become indicative of, of the fact that we're living in a fallen world. And the two things are what Paul is talking about this morning. Um, uncontrolled passions and uncontrolled emotions. These two subjects, and he, he gives a list of each in verses 5 and verse 8. Um, God's creational intention, of course, for sex and speech became perverted in the garden, and they remain perverted to this very day. Now, as I was praying, I said a little bit about the difference between justification and sanctification, Depending on your denominational background, your upbringing, or maybe you didn't grow up as a believer at all, you don't have distinctions between those two categories. Because as we talk about killing sin this morning, as we talk about fighting sin this morning, you may be remembering a month ago or so when we said, there's nothing you can do to be right in the sight of God other than Christ's finished work of atonement on the cross. So you may be thinking, wait a minute. Do I have to fight sin or do I not have to fight sin? I mean, I thought you said I was saved by grace through faith because of Jesus. So we want to make the distinction here that in terms of being saved, in terms of being justified in the sight of God, where God says, I receive you to myself, your sin doesn't separate you from me anymore, you're saved. If the world were to end tomorrow, if you were to die tonight, you're going to heaven. That's justification, the grounds of our right standing with God. What we're talking about today could fall into the category of sanctification. So I didn't grow up with those distinctions. I grew up in a church that those divisions were were muddled. And so you always felt like when you were fighting against sin, it was a matter of keeping your salvation. At any moment, your salvation was in jeopardy. So we want to clarify that. But that's not what we're talking about. Our salvation is secure in Jesus Christ. Our salvation is secure because of what Jesus did on the cross. Our sins, past, present, and future, are all reconciled in the sight of God because of the blood shed. And, and we, only, we get in on that by grace through faith. We don't, and so that's, that's all God's work. Sanctification is also the work of God's grace. Uh, but we're commanded, and just so I can define the term sanctification, it means that we are growing in God's grace, fighting against sin, the sins in our life become less and less, and we outwardly and inwardly become more and more like Jesus. So I, I, I hope that's kind of clarified that. But um, as a culture... Um, uncontrolled passions, uncontrolled emotions uh, kind of have ravaged us since the fall in the garden. And if you, look at, if you look at our world right now, especially in the Western world, we're kind of infatuated with sex and profanity, you know, infatuated with sex and vulgarity. Um, it's not hard to see how certain cultures in other parts of the world look on us and say, Boy, what a, what a horrid society over there because they seem to celebrate these things. Um, and, and that's the culture, kind of the culture we've become. And I say we because we're a part of the culture. 
I don't, it's not good for us to say us versus them. The culture does this, but we, as good, perfect Christians, do this. We're a part of the culture. And so um, this is something that our culture has embraced. And what this passage is zeroing in on is that what we do with our bodies and say with our mouths either honor God, ourselves, and those around us, or dishonor God, ourselves, and those around us. One of the things you can't miss in the Old Testament, especially if you read the book of Joshua, is that God has called his people to be different. This is important. He's called us to be different. He's called us to be different from the world because we reflect his glory and his name and his character. And so God has called us out from the world to be a separate and holy people, to live a certain way, that's what we're getting at here in this passage, to live a certain way that declares to the world, we belong to God, we worship God, God is our Father. This is a different way of living, is what we're saying. Um, Last week, remember um, the passage we quoted where Paul says, live such good lives among the pagans that even though they speak evil of you, they, they can't help but to glorify God because they'll see your good behavior. So this, this is unpacking that a little further. Um, God calls us to be different. It's a return to bearing God's image. It's a return to what the human race was meant to do. That's what happens when we become Christians. There's this restoration of God's original purpose for the human race. That's what's going on. Um, Sin interrupts that image bearing. And this is why Paul spends so much time in Colossians um, saying things like, you know, you died to sin. You've been uh, delivered, you know, from sin. Um, We've been delivered from the guilt and power of sin. Because some of you right now are thinking, and you should be thinking, um, yeah, but I still sin. Right? I mean, you're thinking that. I still sin. Uh, If Jesus has defeated sin on the cross, we've been delivered from the guilt and power of sin. Why is it that I'm still sinning? Um, Well, what happens is, let me, me, I'm just getting ahead of myself, but let me jump into it here. Um, Paul wants us to realize that even though the power of sin over our life has been canceled out, right? Because the power of sin condemns and condemns us to eternal punishment. There still remains in each one of us indwelling sin or sin habits that we're supposed to recognize and fight against. Uh, about a week ago, uh, we noticed uh, flea dirt on our dogs. Southern California, we don't have fleas because it's so dry. It's just not a problem. Dogs have other issues, but Fleas aren't one of them. So flea collars and flea treatments just don't sell very much in Southern California. It's just that dry. But here it's humid, and so you know animals get fleas. And we called a friend of ours who's a veterinarian. And she said, yeah, you have to take extreme uh, measures to eradicate those parasites. It's not just if you don't find fleas on your animal, you're good to go. You've got you know, you've, you've to you know, buy stuff and you know, wash all the you know, the sheets and the linens and wherever the dogs have been and, you know, suck up the carpets and do all these different things. And 
it's a good illustration for us because just like we have to eradicate those fleas, Paul says, put sin to death. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. You know, he doesn't say contain sin. Get a handle on your sins. You know, get your sins under control. That's not what he says. He says, put to death what is earthly in you. The worldly and carnal and sinful behavior that still remains, right? Because you as a sinner died. The sinner you died, but there are sinful habits that remain. And Paul says, now put it to death, kill it. Those sinful habits that you still have, yeah, you're a new creature, but you still have sinful habits and sinful thoughts and sinful behaviors. And what you need to do is eradicate it. And he uses this term, kill it. He says, kill what is earthly in you. On your bulletin this morning, there was a quote uh, by John Owen. And the latter part of the quote just says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. This is serious business. Because on one hand, we want to affirm that we're secure in Christ because of what Jesus did. But on the other hand, we want to say that sin is so serious that it can destroy your life, and it can. It can destroy relationships, and it can destroy your relationship with the Lord. Not that the Lord will cast us off because we sin, but everything that God intends through his son Jesus in the relationship of our salvation uh, is is jeopardized by sin. I'm not talking about eternity. I'm talking about this life. Right? Coming to God confidently with, a, with, a, with peace of heart and peace of mind, knowing uh, that we are fighting against indwelling sin. That's what this statement is about. And in verses 5 and 8, he gives these two lists that correspond to worldly and carnal behavior. Impurity and passion, evil desire and covetousness in verse 5. And these are all things that correspond to sexual immorality. And in verse 8, wrath and malice, slander and obscene talk. And these are all things which are expressions of anger. So sexual immorality and anger. These are two things that, that we should focus on because they're prevalent in us, in our culture... And there, there are two categories that as, that as Christians we have to focus in on. They threaten the unity of the church most, these two sins, sexual immorality and anger. And we have to focus in on them. Uh, they're, they're dehumanizing and, and demonizing, right? When, when we objectify others sexually, we're really dehumanizing them. We're not uh, maintaining the image, that, the image of, of God in them because they're just objects to, to us when, when we objectify sexually others. And then when we talk about people and we slander people and we say mean and hurtful things to people and about people, we demonize them. And both of these things, objectifying people and demonizing people, go against God's good creation of human beings as image bearers. Yeah, we're fallen, but even sinners retain image bearing in the sense that they bear God's image. This is what Paul is concerned for us to know. 
that when we do this, when we engage in sexual immorality, not even acts, but even thoughts, we objectify people, and when we have anger, which causes us to talk about people and slander them and use obscene talk towards others, we demonize people, and both of these things are wrong. Um, now, maybe you've struggled with going to church or being a Christian because you're thinking, oh, great, right now they're talking about um, you know, sex and profanity. The church is always moralizing about those things. But what's helpful for us to know is um, if we're going to be empowered to live for God, for his kingdom, and proclaim his name to the world, we have to do it God's way. And part of being on mission, you know, being a part of God's mission to the world to renew all things through Jesus Christ means that we can't do it our way. We have to do it God's way, and he calls us to mortify or kill the deeds of the flesh. Um, we have to understand what the will of God is for us. 1 Thessalonians 4 and 3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality. This is the will of God for you, that you abstain from sexual immorality. It's God's will that you abstain from that. It's God's will that you fight against the passions and evil desires and covetousness that cause you to be sexually impure. And you know, the, funny, the interesting thing is both of these categories are, are kind of... Uh, private things going on, right? Um, it's they're really conditions of the heart. You know, we it it's pretty obvious, right? You shouldn't be going out and and sleeping around or cheating on your spouse or or committing fornication. But the emotions that are caught up in sexual desire are just as sinful, right? You remember what Jesus said? You have heard it said: if a man, you know, if a man goes, you know, is with a woman he's not married to, he commits, you know. Um, Adultery, but I say to you that if a man lusts in his heart, he's already committed adultery, right? God's concerned about the heart. And this is where we as Christians, we struggle the most with. We struggle the most with the condition of our heart. Because it's easy, right, once you've, once you've abstained and stopped the outward behaviors, to say, I'm good. I'm not hurting anyone. I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not touching anyone. I'm not, you know, I'm not... You know, I'm not, uh, I'm not beating anyone up over the head, but God goes after our hearts. He wants our hearts, you know. Uh, serve the Lord with all of your heart, right? We want, he wants us to serve him with all of our hearts. Ephesians 5 and 3 says that there should not even be a hint of sexual impropriety in you. Not even a hint. Those are, those are tough words. Not even a hint. So, so not only that we should abstain from sexual immorality, but there's not even a hint in us. That's how serious it is. And by the way, sex is a good thing. You know, Hollywood didn't give us sex. God gave us sex. All right? So we can just, you know, get rid of any notion that we're calling people to be monks or anything like that. Sex is a good thing. God gave us sex, but he gave it to us to be enjoyed in a certain way between one man and one woman in matrimony. See, because sex outside of marriage, it's really about selfishness because it's not about giving. 
It's simply about taking. It's simply about pleasure, right? Because sex outside of marriage, is not, there's no commitment there. When you're married to someone that you love, you're committing yourself for, for life. You're giving yourself to that other person. It, it, it reflects the love and, and, and it reflects the character of God in holy matrimony. Sex outside of marriage is just all about gratifying the flesh. <clears throat> so Paul distinguishes you know, here between this legitimate and illegitimate use. You know, actually, I'm, I'm making the, distinct, the distinction, but Paul is focusing on, on the illegitimate use of sex. He's not, he's not just condemning sex outright. Um, and here's these five categories. Impurity, which is what we do with our bodies, even in private, okay? So here, these five categories. Impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, and then he says they're all idolatry. Impurity is what we do with our bodies, even in private. Passion, he says... And that's lusting after people and images, all right? So in this, there's nothing wrong with the word passion. We all have passions. But in this context, it's lust, lusting after people or images, all right? We live in a digital age. I don't need to say any more about that, but you know exactly what I'm talking about. And I want to say it's an epidemic in churches, in Bible-believing churches, you know? The evangelical church is is just, I mean, just, I'm using it as a general term. Uh, it's rampant, um, and it's a, it's, a, it's a plague right now in our culture. Uh, covetousness, wanting someone you can't have, particularly someone else's spouse, or wanting someone other than your own spouse, even if that person is single. We're coveting. These are all categories of sexual immorality. And then idolatry, and here's the funny thing. We think idolatry is bowing down before a wooden statue. But Paul essentially is saying that all of these things are idolatry because anything that interferes with our worship of God is idolatry. Idolatry is not just bowing down before a, a, you know, a, a wooden or a stone statue or an image. It's anything that interrupts, and that, that's what... That's what sexual immorality does. It interrupts our worship of God. In fact, it's interesting how young adults who are raised in church, often when they go off to college, they have all of these, all of, they have all of these questions about the existence of God. And some of that comes from the secular unbelieving professors and their influence. But a lot of it has to do with at that age, college kids become sexually active and guess what happens if all of the claims of, of the word of God are true? All of the truth claims of scripture are true, that God is who he says he is, it means well, you just can't sleep around with anybody. So, you know, when, when we see unbelief from our culture, it has a lot to do with the implications of the fact that if God is real, you can't just do anything you want. You can't just sleep around with whoever you want. And so... Sometimes it's just deeper than a simple matter of, I don't think God exists. It's, what sin is behind that unbelief? And often it's sexual immorality. It's, 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 it's lust. Um, James 1 and 15 says, when desire um, conceives, has conceives, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. Um, so we're all tempted we all have thoughts. Have you ever had a thought just come through your head and you went, where in the world did that come from? Right? 
Sometimes thoughts come through your head and you shudder. You know? <laughs> I mean, that happens to me. Oh, where did that come from? Well, you have a choice to let it fester or kick it right out. You know, when I grew up, I remember hearing uh, uh, my pastor say, um, you can't stop, you know, um, a bird from flying over your head, but you can stop it from landing and building a nest. I hope that's a helpful illustration. And that's what happens with thoughts. When, when, when uh, desires conceive, right, you, you, you ruminate on it, you think about it, you brew and you stew on it, and then it, it gives birth, right? It all happens in here and in here. And when sin is grown, it brings forth death. Uh, that, that, that husband or wife who commits adultery, it doesn't happen just like that. There's been something going on in the mind and in the heart for a long time before that. Good godly people rarely find themselves in predicaments where all of their moral convictions just pour right, go right out of the window in an instant. There's usually something that's been festering in them. Sin and lust and passion and desires have, have conceived. In other words, it's like it's given birth. That, that's kind of what James is saying here. And Paul says to kill it. You, you, you have to, you know, as Christians, we want to love people, right? And we don't use the word hate often. Maybe, maybe you know, just as a figure of speech. Oh, I hate when that happens. But we don't talk about hating things. But here's one thing I want to tell you, and this is for all of you, whether you're three or, you know, 73. It's okay, and God wants you to hate sin, Hate your sins. Pray that God helps you hate your sins. That's a good thing. God wants us to hate our sins because things we hate, we want to kill. Bugs freak me out, insects. And when I see them, you know, you know I freak out. You know, you look on your shoulder and it's like, you know, and you know, you just, you see, you know, you know now they have like you know, all these videos on Facebook and people freaking out. When I see insects, big insects, Spiders don't do it, but big insects freak me out. But you know, when you see a big beetle on the ground, you know, you just, you, you stomp on it because it, you know, it's just, it's so, it freaks you out so much. You know, you hate it. You know, you hate the, the feeling it gives you and you want to, you want to just crush it and squash it. That's how God wants us to be about sin. He wants us to hate our sins. And here's the thing. It's hard to hate sin when you're not cultivating your love for Jesus, because the more you love the Lord, the more you love God, the more you're going to hate things that pull you away from the glory of that, of that intimacy. The more you love him, the more you're going to hate things that threaten to undo that relationship. God wants us to hate our sins. And he says, because of these things, the wrath is coming. It could also be interpreted, because of these things, the wrath of God comes. And when we think about wrath, we've seen movies we think of like fireballs coming out of the sky you know and like you know destroying whole cities you know um but in reality one of the evidences of the wrath of god is simply that people are left in their sins that god gives them over in fact you should start to worry if when you do some of these things you you sleep sound at night you know, if you're, be, if you're engaging in habitual sin and, it does, and you're numb to it, that's a bad place to be. Sin should shake you up. You should, you should, you should uh, hate your sins. You should be broken over sins. We sin 
but we, if we have such a, such a cavalier attitude about it, um, that's kind of a sign that, that, that things are, are not going well in our life, and that should worry us, that should scare us. Um, in Yosemite and the High Sierras and in the Sequoias in California, um, they have beaten trails, and the wilderness is pristine, but the trails are, because they're walked on so much, they're like a foot and a half into the turf, and they, want, they encourage you to stay on the trails. Well, if, if you stop walking on a trail, um, over time, the growth will fill in the rut, and then the weather and the leaves to the point where um, grass and erosion eliminate its visibility completely. Um, and that's how it is with, with sin habits. If you stop visiting those neural pathways, they'll start to disappear over time. And, and I want to say this, God doesn't just deliver you from sin. Where you pray a prayer and the supernatural power of God comes on you and you're all of a sudden you never struggle with another sin again. What God delivers us from is the guilt and the power of sin, but he calls us this is why, I'm not sure it's this way. I'm not sure why it's this way. I don't know why it's this way, but God calls us to f- actively participate in fighting against our sin, and he does not just, he, he doesn't just turn a switch in us and all of a sudden, we walk perfectly. We have to wrestle against our sins. We have to fight against our sins. We have to kill our sins. We have to war against our sins, and that means that you have to make certain life choices. You have to make choices. You have to make wise choices about the way you live. Yeah. You know, you wake up five years later and you say, I prayed for God to deliver me from this sin, but he never did. It doesn't work that way. You have to fight against sin. You have to make conscious decisions that you're not going to do this anymore. You're not going to visit this website anymore. You're not going to you know, be alone with this person anymore, or whatever it is. God calls us to do do that. That's what sanctification is. The other way, um, so so that's one way to put sin to death. The other way is through deep prayer. Uh, Prayer is vital. You ought to be going to God every single day, calling out and naming that sin, naming that idolatry before the Lord. And, you know, some of us are so ashamed of some of the, the things that we we think about or the things that we struggle with that we almost have to whisper it to God. We don't want anyone to hear. But we have to name it. We have to call it out to the Lord in prayer. What's interesting is Jesus, for all the power he had, was always praying. If you read the New Testament, uh, the Bible says that, you know, and he disappeared and went into the countryside to pray. And he was in the mountain all night praying. And he was in the hill you know, uh, by the lake, you know, praying, and the disciples didn't know where he was, and you think, wait a minute, this is the Son of God, this is God incarnate, why did he have to pray? If Jesus had to pray for strength, how much more do you think that we need to pray to get through every day and to fight against sin, and sometimes that means praying a dozen times a day, or praying right at that moment when you feel the temptation coming on so strong. The second thing is anger Paul talks about. Um, Expressions, um, uncontrolled emotions that find its expressions in words and speech. Look at what he says in verse 8. But now you must put them all away. 
Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth, and don't lie to one another. James 3 and 6 says that the tongue is a world of fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. The tongue, the way we use our mouth. In the book of James, it says it's the most unruly member of our body. You can, quit, you, can, you can more quickly commit sin with your mouth than anything else just by the things you say. It's, a, it's an unruly member. It's, you know, James goes on to say the, same, the, the person that can tame his tongue, that guy's perfect. That woman's perfect. If a person can tame their tongue, they're perfect, which means they're complete. You know? None of us reach absolute perfection, but it means we're functioning the way God wants us to function. He goes on to say, the tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Remember we said sex objectifies if it's unused, if it's, excuse me, if it's, if it's used wrongly. Well, anger, in the form of words, de demonize people. And look at what he says in, in James. With it, we we bless the Lord our Father and curse people who are made in God's image. That's what the tongue has the power to do. You know that saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, uh, but you know, words will never hurt me? That's not true. Uh, <laughs> words set people on fire. Words start wars. Words get people killed. Um, I grew up on the streets. Um, I grew up in church, but for a good five or six years in my teenage years, I don't know if I've shared this with the congregation, um, I was a part of a street gang in Los Angeles, and uh, Chicano, uh, a Chicano gang in Los Angeles. Uh, Los Angeles has a storied gang past, an entrenched gang culture, and I grew up in one of those neighborhoods, and I was a part of a gang for, uh, for years, and I was in and out of correctional facilities, I was going to funerals of guys at 14 and 15 who were getting shot and killed. Um, I was you know, charged with crimes, and only by God's grace, he delivered me from that. But guys would get killed over saying things to other people. You know, what are you looking at? And then, you know, just, I mean, just, I mean, before you know it, someone has a, a knife in their stomach or a, a gunshot in their chest over just words. You know, I look back in retrospect and think, wow, you just keep your mouth shut. I mean, all the trouble you avoid just by, you know, keeping your mouth closed, it's crazy. Um, Jesus said in another place that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? So the words that are coming out of our mouth is, re are really, is really a result of what's in our hearts. Um, and when hurtful words come out of your mouth, when you slander people, when you, when you use obscene words, you can't take it back. That's the thing about words. You can't take them back. Once they leave, now, some of you scientists know that all sounds go out into the atmosphere and, you know, somewhere with some type of machine, spaceships can, like, pick up, like, you know, songs that were played on the radio 50 years ago because they're bouncing out there. I mean, I, I think that's true, right? Some, some of you <laughs> have heard that before. I mean, you can't take words back. You know, once they leave your mouth, they're gone forever. And, and that, that, that's, that's something we should think deeply about. Uh, Jesus says this about anger and 
and, and wrath and malice <clears throat> and obscene talk when he, when he says, you know, they flow from an angry heart. In Matthew 5, he says, everyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. That's pretty serious. Those are pretty serious words about, from, from Jesus about the way we use our words. God will not hold us blameless for using our words um, in ways that are harmful to others. And then finally, in closing, there's two reasons why we should kill and put away sexual immorality and anger. There's these two reasons. In verse 9, it says, we've put off the old self with its practices and we've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. We're, we're to kill sin because sin is the habit of the person we once were. That's why we kill sin, and that's why we should hate our sins, and that's why we should, we should put our sins to death and put them away because that's the behavior and the characteristic of a person that no longer exists. We're new creatures. We're being renewed in the knowledge of our maker. And then secondly, he says there's no Greek, there's no difference between Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Uh, before there were distinctions between Jews and Gentiles on the basis of the Jews' chosen status and the Gentiles as pagan idolaters. But that, that's all, everybody is equal at the foot of the cross. We're all equally sinners Jew and Gentile alike, and every one of us. No one is better than anyone else. We all struggle with sin, right? The Jew can't say to the Gentile, you sinners need to repent. I'm good because I'm a son of Abraham. No. We're, we're all equally sinful, sin, sinners, and we all need to repent and kill sin. What is God calling you to put to death this morning? Just take a moment. What are you keeping on life support in your life that God wants you to pull the plug on? What hidden sin, what hidden passion, what, you know, pet sin? Is it slander? Are you a backbiter? Is there lust in your heart? Something that you, you receive an inward pleasure from, from thinking about, but you know it's deadly and dangerous? What is it? God wants you to pull the plug on it. God wants you to kill it. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you uh, for delivering us from the kingdom of darkness and bringing us into the kingdom of your beloved Son, Jesus. We know, O oh God, that our sins um, have been reconciled by the blood of Jesus related to our eternal salvation. And that our sins don't have the power to send us to hell because you look on the perfect life of your son and the sacrifice on the cross. But 
you command us, because that is true about us, you command us to kill and put to death the remaining habits of sin in our life. And these two categories of sexual immorality with its passions and lusts and anger with hurtful words that embody themselves in obscene talk, slander, and hurtful words, Lord, help us to mortify, to kill, to eradicate remaining vestiges of the old life. Father, we look to you with confidence. We pray, O oh God, that you would help us to be like your son. Help us to look to him as an example of godliness and holiness. You do call us to, uh, to emulate him. Father, empower us by your spirit to do this in Jesus' name. As uh, Susan and Steve play a verse from a song we sang earlier and the ushers come forward with the offertory baskets, uh, would you fill out your connect card? Let us know you were here. Let us know how we can pray for you. Uh, and also give your tithes and offerings as an act of worship. Uh, but as you take some time to reflect, ask yourself that question that Jordan ended with. What sin might you be keeping on life support that God is calling you to pull the plug on? Uh, the verse that Susan's going to sing from the song earlier says, in the dark of night before the dawn, my soul be not afraid. For the promised morning, oh, how long, oh, God of Jacob, be my strength. And maybe this time right now during this offertory is a time for you to cry out to God to be your strength as you work at killing your sin, uh, pulling the plug on it this morning. In the dark of night before the dawn, my soul be not afraid for the promised morning, oh how done great things we 